So, one of the things that um, you get to, well, I can't say it's a privilege, but uh, one of the things that happens when you're a minister is, um, after a while, most of you are embarrassing. So, and so I figured I'd get one off the bat that isn't, well, too mortifying, but uh, it is sort of silly, although it caused me a lot of pain, which is that when I was 14 years old, I, um, I broke my leg. That's the painful part. The silly part is I did it by running into a park hall. You can laugh. It's all right. Laugh my pain. Uh, but one of the things that happened is that um, it ended my tennis career. I was actually a pretty good tennis player up till about the age of 14. And after that point, I spent about, uh, I think I had two operations on my leg. I had two operations and pins put in it. And I was sort of, you know, wheeled around for most of that year. And there on my tennis career. But up until that point, I actually looked pretty good. Nothing earth-shaking, and I don't think I would have even gotten a college scholarship out of it. But, um, you know, I, I went to tournaments at camp, and I took lessons on a regular basis, and, you know, I was a really sort of good player, and I enjoyed it a great deal. But I wasn't always, perhaps, the best student. In the early 80s, I was really into, remember the player Yannick Noah? Really great player. He won the French Open a couple times, and he just had this amazing ability to sort of run across the court and sort of just flick, you know, just flick with his wrist and come right back to the center of the court and go over here and do it backhand. He just was absolutely just grace in movement, absolutely perfect. And me being 12 years old, I think, I want to be young. So this one day I was taking a lesson from my instructor and everything I was trying to do was flip like this, flick like that, just try and be an absolute pro. The problem, however, is what the results, well, they weren't quite the same as Yannick Noah's were. And I said, you know, come on, what's going wrong here? And he said, well, you know, you're not being very patient. You're not taking the time to actually turn, bring the racket back, and look the ball all the way in, and step in, and follow through. I don't want to do that. I want to be like Yannick Noah. He said, okay, I'll make you a bargain. For the next five minutes, you can be Bjorn Borg. You can be John McEnroe. You can be Yannick Noah. You can be Jimmy Connors. You can be whoever you want to be out here on the court. I said, oh, this is going to be awesome. And I'm just, you know, getting ready, getting ready, getting psyched. Turn. Whoosh. Ball's back there. I'm ready again. Turn. Plink. Ball goes into the next girl, the next court, taking a lesson over there. I turn all red face and say, whoop, sorry. Five more minutes that. He said, you can't change it. This is the bargain we made. This is the bargain we made. You have to play like a pro. Very few of the balls, actually, that he sent to me went back over to him. Five more minutes of this. At the end, I'm really frustrated. He said, okay, are you willing to try it my way? I've been humbled enough to say yes. He said, remember this. Face me, bring the racket back, step in, turn, follow the ball. Send me a ball, sent back, back and forth, and back and forth. He said, what are you doing right? I said, well, I think I'm paying attention. That's what happened. Stay with the basics. Stay with the basics. Do one thing at a time. Everything will turn out okay. I was in so much of a rush to want to play like the pros that, of course, I was mimicking them, but I wasn't actually able to produce their results. First, learn the essentials, then eventually 
but develop your own style. But first, the basics. I thought of this the other day. I was actually watching online. Roger Federer, some of you might know, he's a you know number one tennis player in the world. And when he's playing, it looks like everything is just one great whoosh of moment, but this is all slowed down. And you could see that what he was doing were the essentials. It's just that he was so good, so practiced at what he was doing, that it just flowed together. It just all flowed together. When we begin something, it's not going to flow all together right off the bat. If you want to be John Coltrane, you've got to first learn scales. Want to be Monet, Manet, any favorite artist of yours, George O'Keefe? First, you've got to learn how to paint within the lines before you can go outside of them. Now, this is wise counsel, whether this is art or music or sports, or in the case of Wellsprings, our congregation, whether what we're talking about is spiritual practice. At Wellsprings, I think this is really where we are right now. We are learning how to not say, well, we want to be like the hugest church in the world. We're learning how to say, how do we turn, hold the racket back, face the ball, and learn to swing through slowly? Word at a time, bless you. Word at a time right now of learning our basics as a congregation. Don't try too much, too quickly. Let us gather together and learn how to be a community. The reason we have a core value at Wellsprings around spiritual practice and the importance of spiritual practice, well, we didn't just pluck that out of the air. We know that many of our lives are so incredibly busy, that there's so much going on, that there's so many opportunities we feel we have to take advantage of. And I really heard some of the costs of this, the emotional, psychological costs of this from Dan Gottlieb. Some of you know who he is. He's the Inquirer columnist. He also has the show on NPR. This past Monday, he wrote this. I could never do two things at once very well. At first I thought it was just a male thing. Then I wondered if it was my learning disability. But I was exonerated in December when two Vanderbilt neuroscientists writing in Neuron Magazine, they wrote that the human brain is incapable of doing two things efficiently at the same time. Think about that. How often do we multitask? How often do we try to do multiple things at the same time? There's a word for it. There's a term for it. It's called dual task interference. We can talk on the cell phone while driving, for example, but the brain, your brain, no matter how much you contort it, no matter how much you try and tell yourself, well, it's hands-free, so I really am paying attention. Not full, undivided attention, you're not. The brain cannot, at simultaneously, both sets of information cannot be processed, so driving is less efficient and the response time is delayed. Just remember that the next time, and I will try to the next time I say, I can take this phone call while I'm driving. One level of awareness will be decreased. And chances are you probably want to make a phone call either. Multitaskers who aim for efficiency, but Mr. Gottlieb continues, multitaskers who aim for efficiency may be misleading themselves. There is a bottleneck in our frontal cortex. Efficiency aside, we are overstimulating our brains and stressing our bodies. The faster our lives go, the more stress hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol get pumped into our blood. Prolonged exposure to these hormones, he concludes, increases our risk for hypertension, for insomnia, for cardiovascular problems, for depression, and for anxiety. Maybe Bob Dylan said it in just a condensed form, a little bit easier. There's too much confusion, I can't get no relief. That'd be sung it all on the watchtower. The antidote to this there is really only one. Well, maybe you can become a hermit and move up to the mountains. That, that is an answer, I suppose, but most of us are not going to do that. 
There is an answer, though, that we can share here amongst ourselves. The only way to try and address this is to cultivate mindfulness in all that we do. To learn, too, just as my tennis teacher taught me all those decades ago, to learn to do one thing. One thing, and then one thing, and then one thing more. And then after that, flow starts to develop in our lives. Spiritual practice is one of our core values in Wellsprings, and it is intentional because we know that many of us are looking for that opportunity to learn to settle. Not settle for something cheap, but learn to settle down. Learn to try and cart peace around with us instead of just being surprised by it occasionally. Many of you are trying out spiritual practice for the first time, and I hope that you will try out in our springboard some of the spiritual practices we're offering for the first time here. My rule is this. My only thing I would offer to you is this. Three little words. Keep it simple. Think about it. Meditation starts with the most elementary act of being alive. Just breathing. But how often do we forget that? How often do we let ourselves go and just become so tense with all we have to do with all the multitasking that we <laughs> hyperventilate? Meditation starts with the most basic thing. Learn to breathe again. The spiritual memoirist Anne Lamont says that the most sincere and honest prayers start with the basic. Thank you, thank you, thank you, she says, or help me, help me, help me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, or help me, help me, help me. Really elementary, basic stuff. It's not that complicated. Part of the simplicity of a spiritual practice is knowing what it is and what it is not. People often say if they haven't prayed or meditated before, what I want to do is I want to lose myself in the moment. That is not a spiritual practice. That's turning off your brain. It's turning off your mind. It's going to sleep, which is important. But spiritual practice is not losing yourself in the moment. Rather, it is the opposite. It is finding yourself in the moment. It is learning that in all true spiritual practices, what we are practicing is awakening. Awakening, which is the possibility, the hope, that we are actually alive to our lives while we're living them, instead of waiting until some time in the future that maybe the waited for life to arrive for us. For those of us who do practice, being awake can be a joyous thing a chance to get some distance from the busyness and the hectic nature of our lives and to remember who we really are. For some of us, spiritual practice is a fearful thing. Because when we have to let go of who we think we are, well, then what are we? And maybe, pardon the words from Satchel Page, I disagree with him, he says, you know, keep looking forward, don't look behind you, because something might be gaining on you. But chances are it is faster than you are. And so in spiritual practice, we learn to just settle down and sink into the things, even if we are fearing them. And sometimes when we think, spiritual practice is just boring. What's happening? Nothing's happening. What's going on? I need to be amused. I want to be enjoying this. But what I find is that my spiritual practice contains all of these things. A chance to face and not to flee from what my favorite prayer book calls the darkness of the world and of our own lives. Running from my fears just makes them all the more powerful, and I find the wisdom of what Eleanor Roosevelt wrote, that when we face them, we also find the capability of doing the thing that we think we cannot do. We find within us a deeper reservoir of strength, and we're released from fear fear itself. Sometimes my prayers and meditations, they are simply boring. I am uninspired and uninspiring, and nothing sacred at all draws near to me, and I feel no elevated state. But that is exactly the point. So 
sometimes life hits a lull. It can't always be in overdrive. And it's what Pascal wrote many centuries ago, that most of our miseries come from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Think about that. Most of our miseries come from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Our lives contain so much noise, so much activity, and it probably wouldn't be that way unless we wanted it. But like many of you, I feel the tyranny of the constant need for productivity that can rob my work of its meaning and my leisure of its peace. Spiritual practice finally reminds us in the end that life is a gift and a mysterious one, that we live between two eternities, two eternities of silence or fullness we know not, but here in this very moment, we can practice being alive and having hearts of gratitude and truly awaken to what this life is, because what other choice is there? Go to sleep. Awaken or go to sleep. There is no place in between them. Now, there's no great mystery of spiritual practices. I think that's sometimes one of the things that makes people not want to try them out is they think, well, that's for the monk up on the mountaintop where the air is clear. Or that's for the truly, the person who is the most of the devotee. It's not the way it is. One of the great things we're actually finding about, you know, too often in our society we talk about science versus religion. Well, science does challenge certain religious concepts, absolutely. The idea that there is a God out there in some sort of pre-Copernican universe when the Earth was the center of everything. We know that's, you know, that's probably not likely to be true. But one of the great things that science is doing is also proving the validity of spiritual experience. There's a whole school of studying spiritual experience called neurotheology, and one of the great uh, leaders of it is actually over here at UPenn. We see that we are hardwired for spiritual experience, that there is a part of our brain that corresponds to learning to sit and be peaceful and experience awe and experience reverence and experience a connection to ourselves that we have not known and experience a connection to something that is far greater than ourselves that finally has no words attached to it. Spiritual practice will, if you try it, I promise you this, it will lower your heart rate, it will lower your blood pressure, and it will cause you to have less stress. I make you those promises. Now also what it will do, perhaps, is you will have mystical visions. You will see things that will really freak you out and really fill up your heart. But that's not the reason to practice. I kids, well, for another sermon at some point in the future, I could tell you about some of the things I have seen in the midst of my spiritual practice over the years, and it's really cool. But you can't always count on it. In the end, what you get is a life that finds a foundation, that has a baseline, and that knows peace on a regular basis. Peace and patience and persistence and joy. When we engage in spiritual practice on a regular basis, we find that these things are not so hard to reach anymore. It's sort of like learning to consistently feed a pet. Maybe at first our spiritual practice is like a little dog, or maybe even as they say in the Buddhist traditions, our mind is like a monkey. It doesn't want to pay attention. It will not do what we do. And so we need to learn to approach it slowly and softly. Learn to feed it. Learn to be trustworthy. And over time, what we will find, as perhaps you have found with your pets and your companion animals, is that once it trusts you, it will follow you around. It will be your companion. That's the same thing with our minds and spiritual practice. Over time, you will find that peace and joy and gratitude are a movable feast, and they will go with you where you take them. I think that, frankly, in our lives, we are too busy 
not to practice, what the book says out there, we are too busy not to pray. Now, pray not. prayer might not be your chosen spiritual practice. But think about it. There is so much going on in our lives. There's a great book, an academic book, called The Challenge of Affluence, an affluent society. It's a little bit detailed. It's probably more than you want to take on. But there's this one opening sentence that I absolutely love. And this is someone who studied affluence in American society the last 50 years. He's an economist. Avner Offer. He says, very simply, Affluence breeds impatience, affluence breeds impatience, and impatience undermines well-being. It's that simple. Affluence breeds impatience, and impatience undermines well-being. Every, you know, uh, it's about you know, a bunch of months away from now, but we're going to see as we approach Thanksgiving, we're going to see Americans are less happy than they've ever been. You see those studies, and it comes up around the time of the year when we start to think about gratitude, and we start to think about happiness. And one of the reasons that qualitatively, yes, in the aggregate, we are less happy than we used to, to be is because this is an affluent society. Not for everyone. I'm not saying everyone is rich, but especially our little corner of Chester County here, one of the most affluent parts of the state that we know. And with this impatience, with this impatience that affluence can breed, it can bring about so many of the things in our lives that we struggle against. And perhaps the strongest of those is loneliness the sense that we are not connected to other people or to ourselves on a deeper basis, a more meaningful basis. I saw this this past week in a particularly small but really important example. I was buying a birthday cake, and I went to the display case in the Acme right up here on Route 100, and I saw seven or eight different sizes of cakes. I saw the triple layers this big, that high. I saw double. I saw single. And then all the way down to the serving size single serving size. And I thought, maybe that's just a little sad that someone has to celebrate their birthday on their own, but what happens in our society? With all these great choices, affluence brings wonderful choices. I don't think any of us want to give those things up. Any of us want to give those things up. But with all this choice, can also come the desire for quick fixes. Quick fixes and high speed, and let's have it now because I want it now, and let's get it delivered, and rush, 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 and hurry, hurry. But the only problem is, is that when it comes to the most meaningful relationships in our lives, including our relationships with ourselves, it is not a matter of quick fixes. It is not a matter of when we are growing, or especially when our hearts are broken, that there is any snap your fingers, let's get it done kind of attitude that will work. The same tools that enable us to be brought what we want, to bring us what we want, is also of little use when we truly want to grow our lives. A number of years ago, I was taking a plane ride, and I heard this kind of spiritual disease in the voice of a man who I was sympathetic with because he was waiting for, I think, his fourth plane ride of the day. The prior three had been canceled, and he was really starting to get angry. He was really starting to get frustrated. But he was really hard to have too much sympathy for because, well, he was just like a bad stand-up guy. He kept talking about, as he was going through security, that he hoped he didn't get some dude to do the body cavity search. He hoped it was one of those hot TSA agents, that this would be the person who would disrobe him. And he kept complaining about when he finally got on the airplane that, you know, they'd probably just give him half a can of Coke. It was one cliched observation after another after another. And after a while, I just said, please shut up. I'm tired of listening to you on this line. But he wasn't completely insufferable, because I did have some sympathy for him. He kept talking about all that time he was waiting throughout the day. Throughout the day, he kept saying, well, I rode the escalator up, and I rode the escalator down. 
And I rode the elevator up. And then I rode the elevator down. And I walked the concourse back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Because, he said, this one thing. You've got to find a way to kill the time. He kept saying this to that person. He was, you know, the person who I guess was his captive. You know, when he was listening to this person. You've got to find a way to kill the time. Now, I have no doubt that even when this person, this complaining man's time was full for him, he would still be looking for a way to look at the next moment and the next moment and the next moment after that. Because if we are trying to kill time, sometimes in the boring moments, chances are we are still killing time even when life is full and life is rich. I thought of that old button that my mom got me many years ago as sort of a hint to say, well, you're doing too much complaining, which says, the longer I complain, the longer God lets me live. It's not true, but sometimes we can think that. This is certainly true of that guy. The world is not my pulpit, though, however. This is really my only pulpit, and so it's brazen for me to try and approach this guy, but I really did feel sympathy for him because I asked, I was going to ask him, what if instead of saying you got to kill the time, you just exchange one letter out and try to fill the time instead? Yes, you're stuck here in an airport. It's not the most wonderful place in the world, but this is what is. And unless you grow wings and fly, there ain't nothing you can do about it. What if instead of trying to kill the time, instead you try to fill the time? If you sit down and you write what is your attempt at the great American novel, or instead of complaining with your fellow passengers, you actually ask them about their families, or you ask them where they come from, or you ask them, you know, yeah, waiting isn't much fun. Let's talk about it. There's all sorts of different ways to fill the time, even when that time seems boring. But first we have to make the choice to, even if we don't want to, first be thankful. First be thankful. It's sort of like uh, when Harry met Sally. So much, of our, uh, so, much of, so much of our lives are in a rush to get to that moment, get to the end. Do you remember when Harry met Sally and Billy Crystal's character is saying that he always, when he begins a new book, he always reads the last page of the book. Why? Because that way, in case he dies before he finishes it, he knows the conclusion. This is kill the time, not fill the time living. To want to rush ahead, even with great hopes, like here at Wellspring, to want to rush ahead, this is a temptation that really we have to try to resist together. Be patient together. That not everything in our lives happens according to our stopwatch. Very often, the most important things in our lives don't happen according to our stopwatch. The spirit of life has a different time clock than we do. Years ago, Nikos Kazantzakis, who was the author, some of you know, of Zorba the Greek, and also The Last Temptation of Christ, talks about an experience he had in which he was walking through the forest one day, and he saw nestled, nestled in the branch of an olive tree, a small chrysalis. Small chrysalis. He'd never come that close before to the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. And he just sat there and he observed it. And something miraculous happened. Something absolutely miraculous happened. It started to break up. He was seeing life come to be in his very midst. And what he could see was this little butterfly with his wings not yet unfurled just trying to crack its way through its chrysalis, its home for the previous time. And it was really struggling. It was really struggling. He said, you know what? I'm going to try and help it along. I'm going to try and help it along. And so what he did is he gathered his hands around that chrysalis. 
we blew on it, thinking that, you know, sort of like an incubator helps us, you know, when maybe we're real small or premature or something, and we need warmth and light to help us along. He was blowing on it. And he could see that that helped the chrysalis open, and he thought, I have done a great thing. And in the next moment, he realized to his heart, I have not done a great thing. Because yes, the chrysalis was open, and yes, this new life within it was starting to emerge. It was hard, he saw, the new life within it was not ready for it. It had to take its own time to be born. Nature had its own rhythm. Birth has its own rhythm. He could see horribly that what he had done was produce a butterfly whose wings were not ready to flap or to fly yet. And so this little creature sort of sadly tilted out of its premature chrysalis. It fell onto the branch and then fell onto the ground and tried to struggle along and tried to fly, but it did not. Hazanzakis remembered that story for the rest of his life, not as guilt, but as a reminder. In life, patience is a seed for virtue. In life, when we practice learning to be patient, learning to not hasten life along, and sometimes not even to help life along, but sometimes just to witness as life is coming along, that this can be the best thing we can do. I opened my message today by talking about being a tennis player, which I'm really not any longer. Now I'm a runner, and a very, very slow one. A few months from now, I'm going to run a half marathon. It'll be my third half marathon. I haven't run one in a few years, because last time I did, I got really impatient, and I gave myself a little bone chip down here at the base of my tibia. But what running has taught me, especially because I know I am slow at it, I will never be like a great runner, but I can be the best runner I can. What I learned, especially when I lived down in Florida, long runs along the beach late at night, and there was no one else around. And I was one of those people growing up, unless there were other people around, I wondered what my own value was. If there's no one around to validate me, who will I be? And I started to sometimes have those fears and start to think, well, I could drop dead right now, right next to this beach, and who will find me? Fear start to come, and the fear start to come. But then, what I learned to develop as a mantra was what we say every week with beautiful words from Thich Nhat Hanh. Take one conscious step and breathe one conscious breath. One conscious step, one conscious breath. And we learn patience, and we learn to do one thing, and then we learn to do another thing, and then we learn to do another thing. Life will not arrive at our doorstep immediately. And so I would encourage all of you, regardless of what you do and regardless of how full or filled to the brim and overflowing your life is, to practice on a daily basis patience. We cannot do everything at once, but we can in time do great things if we learn to do one thing. Amen. May you live in God.